You're listening to audio from Christ Covenant Buckhead. If you're interested in learning more, visit ChristCovenantBuckhead.org. Amen. You can take a seat. I want to thank you for being here, for worshiping, for being in this moment. Uh, It is good that we are here seeking the Lord together, and uh, we hope to hear from Him, to grow in our understanding of Him. Uh, I uh, do just want to take a second uh, as we get started today to just wish all you fathers uh, a happy Father's Day. Um, I I know you're not here to be... uh, commended or awarded. And as a father, if anything, it's kind of a day where you just want to actually thank your wife and children for making you a father, because it's such a joy and a privilege and, uh, and an honor to be a dad. Um, and I'll just say, you know, as a dad, uh, uh, us guys, we surely would be further from the Lord and certainly more foolish uh, without our children. Uh, so, um, uh, but I do just want to encourage you dads, it's a high calling, it is a, it is a huge job, it is a hard job, um, and I just want to encourage you in it. We, we really want to be a church that does a great job encouraging men um, and uh, equipping men, equipping fathers in particular uh, to, to be great leaders of their home, to be, to be great husbands to their wives. We have some wonderful men's groups, we have ministries like the Spotted Cow, uh, we have some resources that even we're going to be talking about here in just a few minutes. So um, uh, just, again, want to ha- wish you men a happy Father's Day um, and uh, wish you well in this incredible calling. But let me pray for us and pray for you, uh, fathers in particular, as we move forward. Uh, Father, I, I do just want to lift up in particular the men today, uh, the fathers uh, of this congregation, Lord. Um, I pray, Father, that um, in their homes they would be models of godliness. Uh, they would, um, that they would be models for their children and for their wives as they follow Christ. Uh, that their wives, their, their children would be able to look to them as a model for faithful living. Father, I, I pray that you would just give them a sense of faithfulness, uh, a sense of humility before their families, a sense of courage, Lord. Uh, that they would serve and love their families well. Father, I pray um, that you would just give them meekness in the home, uh, that they uh, would, would be humble as they lead uh, in the home, and, uh, but also strong. Um, and Father, I pray um, that you would just protect the families of Christ's covenant, that you would secure them and care for them, um, and that you would just show your glory through them. And so, Lord, I pray all of this uh, in the strong and good name uh, of Jesus, for his sake and in his name, amen. Well, our scripture reading, uh, as Matt mentioned today, comes from Philippians chapter 2. So go ahead and be turning to Philippians chapter 2 with me. I'm going to read this passage uh, aloud as you can follow along in your Bibles. Philippians chapter 2, very famous passage of scripture, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through uh, 11. Uh, and let's consider these words. Of course, the Apostle Paul is writing this to the church at Philippi. He's writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore they come to, these words come to us today with authority, with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching and building his church. So let's uh, hear together the word of Christ. Philippians 2, verse 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ... 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a great thought experiment, uh, a great thought discipline is to try to not only think about what you're doing, but to try to think about why you're doing what you're doing. To try to discern, why am I doing this? What is my motivation for this act, for whatever I'm doing? It can actually be kind of discouraging when you think about why you're doing what you're doing. Because if we have to be honest, a lot of times our motives aren't as pure as they may seem to be. Our, our motives aren't as pure as they may appear you know, the book of Hebrews says that God judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's one thing for God, the Almighty, the sovereign ruler of the universe, to know all of our deeds, to know everything we do. It's something else for Him to know everything that we think, but it's something else altogether for Him to know everything that we intend, to know every motivation that stirs us, that moves us, that causes us to do what we are doing? What if the almighty God of the universe knew every intention, every motivation? And the thing, the thing is, is it's hard for us sometimes to even know what our motivations are, right? I mean, a lot of times I, I, I want to be motivated in a good way to do something. In fact, maybe I think that I am, but then if I look at my own heart, I say, well, maybe I'm not. Maybe, maybe there's pride or maybe there's selfishness or the desire to be seen or some other sort of motivation that, I'm, that I don't want to be true of me behind this action, behind this thought, behind uh, this thing that I am doing. The great uh, church reformer Martin Luther, who you all heard me mention, he had a friend named Philip Melanchthon. And he was his best friend throughout the Reformation, and they were, there they are, Martin and Philip. And they were good friends for one another because Martin wasn't afraid of anything. Martin was fearless. He was bold. He, he never feared anything. He was a hard-charging uh, guy. But Philip was, was, was afraid. He was timid. He was always scared of something. He always had a question about something. And so they were a really good dichotomy uh, for one another. But, but you have to understand Martin and Philip, they had come out of a world where you were judged by the actions that you did in the presence of the church, right? That's how you found righteousness, that the church would deem you righteous, that you would do enough that the, the, the church world around you would say, you have done what is right and good. But Martin and Philip started to understand, no, 
What really matters is not how the church judges your heart, but how God judges your heart. And if God knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart, if God knows every motivation of your heart, the holy God of the universe will then what? And so this was a a great time of, of unrest for them, of turmoil for them. I mean, Martin Luther in particular, at one point, he started to get a sense of this. He was a monk. And, you know, just to make sure that he was trying in every way to kind of humble himself, he would, he would sleep on like this hard, cold stone, I mean, in the middle of Germany winter floor, uh, just to, to try to make sure that he wasn't enjoying luxury too much. He would wake up in the middle of the night and pray. He, would, he was doing all of these things just to, make, to try to make sure that his heart was pure before God because he had this sense of the holiness of God, and he had a sense of his own heart. He had a sense of his own thoughts and intentions, and he realized, I am not holy before God. Martin Luther would go to confession, and he would confess to the priest, you know, I was praying and I had a, a lustful thought, or I was working and I desired to be seen uh, working hard so that others would, would take note of me and pay attention to me. I mean, these are the kinds of things he was confessing in confessional. And the, finally, the priest just said to him, Martin Luther, go burn a village. You know, go do something worthy of confession. Go do something that you really need to come in here and confess. But you see, Martin Luther got it. He realized his heart before God was broken, was corrupt, and he could never find peace, and he could never find hope, and he could never find any sense of relief from this. He, he had this sense of the holiness of God. He had this sense of the thoughts and intentions of his own heart, and he knew there was a disconnect. And the truth is, is, is if you've ever gotten to that place, if you've really understood how big and holy and wondrous God is, and if you really circumspectly looked at your own heart, you would be, I would be, we all would be in the same place that Luther is. But you see, the only place that he could find peace is the only place that you and I could find peace, and that is the peace that he ultimately found, not by looking to his own righteousness and the purity of his own heart, but by looking to Jesus and by looking to the righteousness of Christ, by truly understanding the gospel, by truly understanding what we just read here in Philippians 2 that Christ humbled Himself even on Martin Luther's behalf, that Christ's righteousness was applied to Martin Luther, and as he looked to Jesus and not to Himself, as he looked to Christ's righteousness and not to His own righteousness, then he could truly find peace. Then he could truly find favor with God. And, and, and this is really what the Reformation was all about. Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and others began to understand these things. But Melanchthon, even after understanding this, would say, but you know what, but I'm still sinning. I, I, I believe that Christ has given himself for me. I, I believe that God has shown me such mercy in Jesus. I believe that I can look to the righteousness of Christ and not my own righteousness, but, but even still my thoughts and intentions are wrong. And so Melanchthon had a tendency to just freeze. He wouldn't do anything because he couldn't trust his motivations, right? He said, well, what if I'm doing this for a bad motive? I shouldn't do it at all, right? You ever been there? What if, I, what if I'm doing this for the wrong reasons? What if I'm really self-serving and doing this good deed? And, and he would just freeze. He, he found himself, he couldn't really do anything. He couldn't take a step forward until one day, finally, Martin Luther wrote him a letter. And he said, Philip, be a sinner and sin boldly. And that might kind of sound strange, but then he says, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ 
who he is the victor over sin of death in the world. And what Luther was saying to him is, is look, Philip, remember the Christian life. The Christian life is, is not about getting some bucket of righteousness that is big enough and full enough to impress God. The Christian life is not about doing some magic act where we get to go to heaven someday. No, the Christian life, all of the Christian life, is a posture of looking away from yourself and looking toward Christ, both in your sin, both when you're deeply committed of an obvious and outward sin, but even, in, even on your best day, hear this, Even on your best day, the Christian life is a posture of looking away from yourself and looking toward Christ. Even in your best deed, you're you're going to be sinning. Even even in your best deed, there's a a shade of, of sin in your life. Even when you do the best things, your heart has the tendency to grow proud. So, Philip, don't freeze. Realize that you're a sinner and just live. But trust in the grace and the mercy of Jesus all the more. All the more look to Jesus. All the more look to the righteousness of Christ, to his victory, to his salvation, to the hope that we have in him. He goes on to say, we will commit sins while we're here. For this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter, 2 Peter 3.13, are looking forward to a new heaven and new earth where justice will reign. But for now, it suffices that through God's glory, we have recognized the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from Him, even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day. Do you think that such an exalted Lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? And what he's saying here is keep looking to Christ, Philip. Keep looking to Christ. It's not your righteousness that sets you right with God. It's only the righteousness of Jesus. And then he concludes the letter almost in jest, but pray hard for you're quite a sinner. But I give you this as an introduction because I, I think a lot of us have a lot of the same kinds of questions that Philip Melanchthon had and that Martin Luther had. How does this Christian life work? What does it mean to be made righteous in Christ? What does it mean to, to live out righteousness and to, to have a new heart that, that is growing in Christ-likeness or in godliness after salvation? What does it mean to look to Jesus? What does it mean to have a, a new heart? And I think that this passage, this very famous passage that I'm sure many of you, if you've been in church for any number of years, have read before is actually incredibly helpful for us in this. So we're going to look at three things together today as we consider Philippians 2, 1 through 11, the heart of man, the heart of Christ, and the new heart. So let's begin with the heart of man. So Paul is writing to this church at Philippi, and he's saying, look, guys, if if you have really experienced the gospel, if you've experienced fellowship with Jesus, if you experience the power of of the Holy Spirit of God in your life, then there should be a uniqueness about you. There should be a newness about you. There is a a wholeness, a purity about you that's, that's unlike anything else in the rest of the world. There is a fullness about you now. If Jesus is change your life. Verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, by having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind. There is a, there is a unity. There is a relational quality that Christians should be able to have with one another, where we really can love one another, where we really can serve one another, where there's really a, a wholeness 
in the family of God. So he's pushing this unity, he's pushing this love for one another. And then in verse 3, he gets to the point of how this actually happens. How do you actually do this? How, how, how is it possible for true unity, true love, for this true God-like distinctness to take place in the church? And so he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Now, this is a fascinating passage because what Paul is doing here is he's diagnosing the human heart. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Well, if we have to be honest, the unredeemed posture of the human heart is that we do everything from selfish ambition. We do everything from vain conceit. The word uh, conceit there is, is a telling word. It comes from the Greek word kenodoxia, kenodoxia, which comes from two words, kenosis, which means to empty, and doxa, which means glory. Uh, so hear this, it's to be glory empty or to be, glor- to be hungry for glory, to have glory hunger, to, to, to have your stomach of glory empty, rather, and therefore to, to yearn for glory, to be a hunger for glory, kenodoxia, to be empty of glory, and therefore to hunger for glory, to hunger for importance, to hunger to be esteemed, to hunger to be great. He says, don't let that be your motivation, but in reality, that is so often our motivation. We hunger for glory. We hunger for importance. We hunger to be recognized. You know, I was thinking about this as thinking of the old Counting Crows song, Mr. Jones. So Mr. Jones and me staring at the video. When I look at the television, I want to see me staring right back at me. We all want to be big stars, but we don't know why and we don't know how, but when everybody loves me, I want to be just about as happy as I can be. Kenodoxia, right? We all want to be big stars. We, we all want to look at the television and see me staring right back at me. But it's interesting with our ego, Our image of the self, we think about it, don't we? We think about how we look. We think about how we're being perceived. We we ask ourselves, do people like me? Are people looking at me? Which, again, just proves that the ego is hungry. The ego is not satisfied. The ego is empty, if you will. When do you think about your stomach? When do you think about food? When do you think about your appetite? You think about it when you're hungry. If you're well satisfied, if you've had a good meal and... You're, you know, you're nice and full. You don't think about your stomach. No, it's, it's, it's when your stomach gets empty that it begins to growl, that it begins to be in pain. You're going to think, I've got to get some food. I've got to fill this. And, and I think the fact that we think about our reputation and we think about how people perceive us, we think about uh, how, what, what do we look like, it, it just proves this to be true. It proves that we're glory-hungry It proves that our ego, if you will, is hungry. But Paul says here, listen, do nothing because of glory hunger. And if we have to be honest, as I said before, most of us do everything because of glory hunger. It's the natural inclination of the heart. It's the natural hunger of the heart. The Christian Writer Lewis Smedes very honestly says this, an ego-driven life becomes a constant battle to use people 
to bolster your own self or to fill your appetite for glory hunger. Every time you meet a new person, you're unconsciously wondering, how can this person contribute to my need to prove that I count? So this all leads to the question, if, if our ego is so broken, where did all this come from? If we're so glory-hungry, where did we get off? And, and from what we see in Scripture, is it, it all goes back to the original sin. Now, you may be saying, oh, I know the original sin. That's when Adam ate the fruit, right? And yes, that, that is, but, but you can understand what that was. What was that? Why was that so devastating? Why, why did this just one little fruit-eating act change the course of the whole world? You've got to understand that the, the fruit that, that was forbidden for Adam was the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, there was a knowledge that God had that Adam wasn't supposed to have. It was a tree. There, there, was, a, there was a tree that God had that Adam was not to have. It, it was something that was for God that, that wasn't for man. There, there was a limit, if you will, to Adam's reign over the garden. It was a small limit, but ultimately it was a limit. He was limited. He, he wasn't given the same reign that God was given, even though he was given an enormous reign, even though he was given enormous liberty, an enormous blessing, an enormous provision, an enormous care. There still was a limit. There still was an order that God had set in place for the man. But remember when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, what, what, what was their motivation? What did, what did the serpent tell them? He said, well, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You'll challenge His boundary. You'll challenge His limit. You'll, you'll challenge the knowledge that He has that you don't have. You'll challenge the places that He can go that you can't go. In other words, why are you submitting to God, Adam? If you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. You won't have to submit to God. You'll be in the highest place. You'll be revered. You will be independent. And such is the original sin, the first sin, the desire to be independent, the desire to be in the place of God. In a religious sense, this is what we call pride. Lewis Meads also goes on to say, pride is a refusal to let God be God. It's to grab God's status for the self and wish to be the creator. It's to wish to be independent, to wish to be self Reliant. Pride. It's the original sin. It's the sin that led Adam and Eve to disobey God, Cain to kill Abel, Ham to scorn his father Noah, the people of Babel to trust in their deeds, the people of Sodom to disobey God's order, and on and on and on and on. Just look at world history. Just read a newspaper. Just watch the news. It's what divides the church and the family. It's what creates corruption in business and in politics. It creates every problem. So, what Paul is saying here is do nothing from this place of glory hunger. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. In other words, don't use others, as Smead said earlier, to, to serve your need for I count. Rather, give yourself to make others count. Give yourself for others glory. But how do we do this, right? How do we do this? You know, I could say, okay, you got it? Verse 3. All right, go do that. How on earth do you do this? Our natural inclination is to do everything from a place of selfish ambition and conceit. But Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. Well, how do we get there? Well, the, the, we're going to get there, but the second thing that we need to look at, if we've understood what the heart of man really is, 
kenodoxia, glory hunger. Let's try to understand what the heart of Christ is. And of course, Paul lays that out in this passage. One of the most amazing, obviously, sections of Scripture, very famous, verse 5 through 8. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this, this passage, as Matt was saying earlier, is so important for the Christian faith. It is so central for the Christian faith because it really helps us to understand what is central in the Christian faith, and that is the incarnation and the coming of Jesus. And it begins with this clear declaration that Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is, is God in His fullness. There was this big debate in the early part of the church history about the nature of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus really God or is Jesus just like God? Is Jesus just a servant of God, a special servant of God that is like God? Or is Jesus God Himself? And it was a lot of church leaders met in the fourth century at this place called Nicaea. It was called the Council of Nicaea. And on one side, there was a a guy named Arius that said, Jesus is like God. Jesus is a a special servant of God. He's similar to God. He's powerful, but he's just like God. But on the other side of the council, there was this guy named Athanasius. They said, no, no, no. Jesus isn't like God. Jesus is God. Of course, what came out of this is what we understand is Trinitarian theology, where Jesus is, Jesus' Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all fully God. But there was a, it was a big debate, and, and, and if you go to the next slide here, there was, this, there was a big debate over this, this word. Uh, Arius and his folks said, no, Jesus is homoousios, which is Latin to mean like God, homoousios. And Athanasius said, no, 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 no. He's not homoousios, he's homoousios. But it's interesting, the words were so similar. There was only an iota that separated the two words, which is coincidentally where we get the term, that doesn't make one iota bit of difference. But as we see in the the church council here, no, the iota made all the difference. Because Jesus isn't just like God. No, Jesus fully is God. He is the same substance as God. Jesus is God. And Athanasius, as he was arguing for this, one of the, 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 the key texts that he went to here was Philippians 2, 6. Even though Jesus is the same substance of God, even though Jesus is fully God, even though in full form Jesus is God, he did not consider equality with God. And I like the NIV translation here, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Even though he was fully God, even though in form he was fully God, (coughs) he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but he emptied himself. And the word for emptied himself there, you know what it is? Kenosis. Sound familiar? Remember that word? He emptied himself. This is an amazing passage. On one side, we who are not the same substance of God, we who are not worthy of glory, we are glory hungry, trying to take the glory that is God's for ourselves, while Jesus, who actually is God, who is the same substance of God, is willing to empty himself of glory, to become a servant. Now, again, this passage brings up questions. 
how did Jesus empty himself of glory? What does that mean? Did Jesus become less than God? Is that what this passage is saying, as, as Arius would have debated at that time? And of course, that's not what it's about at all. It's not right to think of Jesus losing his glory. What's right to think here is Jesus not fully displaying his glory. Jesus not putting his full glory on display. He, he emptied himself. He, he didn't take full advantage of the glory that he could have, but rather he became a servant. He veiled his glory. He covered his glory. As the old hymn writer Charles Wesley says, we sing this at Christmas time, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. I had a professor in seminary, Bruce Ware, he said, Jesus emptied himself by adding. He, he emptied his glory by adding humanity. He covered his glory with humanity. He was willing to cover his glory. How opposite is that of the heart of man? Anytime we get glory, you know what we immediately want to do? Anytime something glorious happens to us, we immediately want to display our glory. We immediately want to put our glory on full display. Yet Jesus was so willing to cover his glory. Don't you see how strange Christianity is? Every worldview says, come up, achieve, be glorious, show yourself powerful, show yourself strong, and be accepted, achieve, show your glory, do more than others, and man will love you, and God will love you. This is what we are taught from the very beginning. But Christianity, our central figure, Jesus, who is God Himself, humbled Himself. He became less. He covered His glory. He was motivated by humble love. This is so different. This is so unexpected. The humility of Christ is something amazing to think about. This is Jesus. He's fully God. This is the one that the Bible says of Him that all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. He has all things. There is nothing higher than Him. He spoke the world into being. He flung the planets and the stars into their place in the sky. There, there is nothing greater than Him. There is nothing you can imagine that has more weight and power and glory and honor. There is nothing more grand than Jesus. He alone is independent. Yet He was willing to cover all of that and become a dependent man and become a baby lying in a manger, a poor, insignificant man. He was, willing to do, he was willing to cover his glory so that he could identify with you, so that he could serve you. The humility of Christ is amazing to think about. And more than just service and identify with us. He was willing to become like us. He was willing to take on our record you know, it's, it's one thing to help someone from a position of strength. You ever help someone from a position of strength? Someone needs something, they come to you, can you help me? Say, sure, I have a little extra, whatever, here. That's a kind thing to do, it's a good thing to do. What Jesus does for us is far, is far greater than that. He doesn't help us from a position of strength he trades places with us. He, he, he goes to our place of weakness. 
and he pulls us out of our place of weakness. He, he goes to our, our place of brokenness, and he, and he pulls us out of our place of brokenness, see. He doesn't just help us from a position of strength. He becomes weak as we are. He becomes broken as we are. He, he becomes our sin. He becomes guilty on our behalf. It's, it's one thing to help someone who's made a mess of themselves. It's another thing to become that mess on their behalf, to become the mess for someone that doesn't deserve anything. That's the heart of God. This is the heart of Christ, the one who was fully God, who made himself low. So we've looked at the heart of man and the heart of God. How, how then, you might be thinking, Jason, how are you going to make this practical? How are we going to do this? How are we going to put this together? Well, let's talk about finally the new heart. You know, we hear all of this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. We know that we're supposed to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but we know that we do everything out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. So what do we do? What does that mean? You know, are we supposed to just be sad now, right? Are we supposed to just be quiet, suppress everything in our heart, well, you need the end of the message here. Look at verse 9. You need the end of the passage. As a result of this, God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does Jesus show us here? What Jesus does is to show us that even though he was God, he didn't compete with the Father. He didn't take advantage of who He was. But He trusted the Father's will. Even though Jesus was fully God, He submitted to the Father's will for His life. He trusted the Father's design. He trusted the Father's order. Even though that meant for Him great pain and great humility and great loss, He trusted the Father's perfect order. And when He did, He was given a name that is above every name. The first Adam scorned the order of God. The first Adam said, I deserve to be in the place of God. Jesus, who was God, who is in the place of God, was willing to become the servant, was willing to become a man, be put in the place of a man. The first Adam questioned and disobeyed the order of God, but Jesus perfectly obeyed the order of God. The first Adam, as a result, was put away from the presence of God, but Jesus was put away from the presence of God so that we could be brought in. And as a result of that, now what do we see in Jesus? He has the greatest name. He has the greatest joy. He has the greatest honor. You, you all want joy. You all want glory. You all want honor. I mean, these are things that we want. But what Jesus shows us here is this is how you actually get it. It's not by picking yourself up. It's not by marketing yourself. It's not by making yourself powerful. No, it's by making yourself low. It's by trusting in the order of God. That's where you really find glory and value and honor. It's where you trust that God is in His right place and that you are in your right place. That's when, when you realize that you've, you've actually in Him been given all things. And when you get there, you won't be so glory-hungry you won't be so concerned with yourself. You'll, you'll realize that God satisfies everything. 
you'll actually be able to love people without manipulating for them for your good all the time. You'll, you'll actually be able to give yourself for others. You'll actually be able to serve others. This, Paul says, this is when the church becomes altogether different from the world. This is when we're not being motivated by vain conceit or selfish ambition all the time, but we're just motivated because we are rightly in the place of God. This makes us so different from the rest of the world. And so how do you get there? How do you trust the place of God? And there's really only one way. There's really only one way, and it's that you look to Jesus. You know, if Adam was in the garden with God, experiencing the presence of God, feeling the power of God, and he couldn't do it, how much better do you think you're going to do? The the only way is to look to Jesus, to remember who Jesus is, to see his character, to see his heart, to realize that he made himself low. He made himself a servant for you. He traded places with you. And when you start to look to him and realize that, you'll feel loved. You'll realize how deeply you're loved by God. You you won't be looking to manipulate love in other places and to market love for yourself in other places. Now you'll realize that you already have been loved by the almighty God of the universe. The only way to do this is to look to Jesus. And you won't be so manipulating, is everything going to work out okay for me? No, you'll realize, you know what? Jesus and the power of his resurrection is going to make all things new and all things right. He already has settled all things on my behalf. The only way you're going to do this is to look to Jesus. The only way you can do this is look to Jesus and realize that Jesus has loved others too and that he's called you into a community. And then you start seeing people, not as just people that can serve you, but as family members, as people that Jesus loves, your Lord loves, and therefore you can love. The only way you're going to be able to do this is to look to Jesus. He is the answer, don't you see? When you see that the one who had everything humbled himself, you can begin to humble yourself. When you see that the one who is in the very essence of God willingly obeyed, you can begin to obey. You can begin to trust. You can begin to find peace. Look to Jesus and your ego will be fixed. You'll quit fighting God all the time. You'll quit trying to manipulate Him to give you what you really want. You'll just start to love Him because you realize how much He's loved you. Look to Jesus. You'll find hope in Him. You'll find rest in Him. And I think a good place to close is with the words of the old hymn writer, John Newton, who, um, who wrote this great old song that says, but since the Savior I have known, my rules are reduced to one, to keep my Lord by faith in view. This strength supplies and motivates to I see him lead a suffering life, patient amidst reproach and strife, and from his pattern, courage take to bear and to suffer for his sake. Upon the cross, I see him bleed, and by the sight from guilt, I'm freed. As I look to Jesus, I feel no guilt because he's paid for all my sins. This sight destroys the life of sin and quickens heavenly life within Exalted on his glorious throne, I see him make my cause his own. Then all my anxious cares subside, for Jesus lives and will provide. By faith I see the hour at hand, when in his presence I shall stand. Then it will be my endless bliss to see him wear 
and as he is. As we think about this, our, our broken heart, so prone on glory hunger, let's consider the one who emptied himself, he emptied himself for us. Now we can look to him and be made whole and right by him. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this church. I, I pray, Father, today uh, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to believe, uh, that you would, you would set us right by the power and the vision of Christ. Um, Father, help us to see his, his humility and love, his his courage, his joy, his peace, Lord, that is ours now as we look to him. Make our lives and our hearts right as we look to him. Free us from motives, Lord, that do not please you. Free us from a heart that uh, is turned in on itself. And Father, release us to be who we were designed to be to be free from glory hunger, but to be satisfied in the glory and in the gift and in the love, Lord, that you give. Turn our eyes and hearts to Jesus, Lord. I pray in his name and for his sake.